On behalf of Chest, I'd like to welcome you to March 2019 podcast. I am George Chang from Duke University, sitting in for Dr. Kyle Hogarth. Thank you for joining us today for an, another terrific conversation. Uh, my first guest today is Dr. Neil Navani, uh, Clinical Director for Lung Cancer and Interventional Bronchoscopy Services at University of London, University College of London Hospital, London, UK, here to talk about his study, uh, the accuracy of clinical staging of stage one to three A non-small cell lung cancer and analysis based on individual participant data. Neil, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. My next guest is uh, Dr. Gerald Silvestri, the Hillenbrand Professor of Thoracic Oncology at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina, here to talk about his accompanying editorial, Setting the Stage for Success in Lung Cancer, the Importance of Remembering Your Guidelines. Welcome. Thank you. Well, uh, without further ado, for our listeners, um, uh, we're going to launch right into this discussion. Uh, Neil, why don't you start us up and tell us uh, what motivated you to do the study and uh, what you did and why. Thanks very much. Um, we all know how important clinical staging of non-small cell lung cancer is. Uh, we use it every day in our clinical practice, and it helps to determine our conversations with our patients in the clinic. We talk about prognosis and treatment options with our patients based on a clinical stage. But what we're not clear about, perhaps, is the accuracy of that clinical staging uh, that we have. So what we wanted to do with this study is really try and examine um, how accurate uh, clinical staging uh, uh, is. So what we did for this study was um, to look at individual participant data from nine randomized trials. We we chose trials of neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy versus surgery alone. And we discarded the patients who had had uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and just focused on the patients that had surgery alone. And in these clinical trials, therefore, we had very detailed and individual patient-level information on their clinical stage and their pathological stage. And I suppose one of the advantages of using this group of patients is that each one of those patients would have undergone protocolized uh, clinical staging in a relatively expert uh, center uh, participating in these clinical trials. So we were then able to uh, extract the clinical staging and compare that directly to the uh, pathological staging. And I think uh, perhaps some of the results that we got were uh, slightly surprising. So we did find that um, overall about 48% 40, of uh, uh, people, the pathological stage, disagreed uh, with the uh, clinical stage. And this is, uh, as I say, uh, from these nine clinical trials, totaling about 700 uh, patients. Um, we found no, I'm gonna... that... I'm going to stop you right there, um, just to kind of kind of break this down a little farther uh, for our listeners. Um, uh, now, uh, understanding uh, so so understanding the difference between clinical staging and pathological staging. Perhaps you can elaborate a little bit on that. Of course. So clinical clinical staging refers to all of the uh, staging techniques and processes that occur before uh, definitive treatment. Uh, pathological staging. Uh, refers to uh, the results of the, stage, the histological staging at the time of surgery. So there's a uh, you know, very big difference between the techniques that are, that are employed. So clinical staging typically in modern thoracic oncology would involve 
um, uh, whole body PET scanning, perhaps scanning of the brain, and uh, very often, as I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on in, in more detail, invasive uh, mediastinal staging, typically uh, uh, with endobronchial ultrasound, endoscopic ultrasound, or perhaps mediastinoscopy. So all of those um, investigations would be considered uh, clinical staging, whereas pathological staging refers to the stage uh, obtained at the time of thoracic surgery, which, um, according to current guidelines, would involve a systematic uh, uh, ipsilateral lymph node dissection. Okay. Uh, uh, Gerald, can, can you comment, can you share your thoughts about how important uh, this topic of staging and, uh, and how that will actually uh, affect our management for our patients? Yeah, so for, for me, first of all, I just want to absolutely compliment uh, Neil on the study. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to review it and then write the editorial. And it, it's just such a simple yet uh, brilliantly designed study. And so, uh, and it gives us incredible information, right? Like just taken off the top, half of the patients are under or over uh, staged. Why is that important? If you look at uh, the treatment options for lung cancer, they are so markedly different based on stage. And so, you know, stage one is generally, early stage one is generally uh, resection. Uh, stage two is uh, resection followed by chemotherapy. Stage three is generally chemoradiotherapy, uh, plus or minus immunotherapy. Stage four is targeted therapy, immunotherapy, or classic chemotherapy or supportive care, depending on your um, uh, performance status. And so, you get that wrong, um, patients aren't going to do as well. Um, and particularly the, the, the one I'm interested in the most and where I see uh, real uh, mix-ups in our cancer clinic uh, and, and when we see patients for second opinion are people who are misstaged uh, as stage three. For example, I'll give you a perfect example. They have a PET scan where they have mediastinal uh, involvement on PET, but it's never followed up by invasive staging, and so they're uh, deemed a stage three patient uh, without ever having been uh, uh, sampled in the mediastinum, and those patients uh, have been denied uh, potentially of curative resection surgery. Uh, so it's, it's absolutely imperative, not just for a treatment options for prognosis, so discussions with family, as Neil said. But there are two other reasons, too. It provides a common language for us to uh, discuss cases with colleagues and other services. Um, so the TNM system provides a common language. And, and lastly, it allows us uh, to look in, uh, in, in to enroll patients in clinical trials. And so what's so interesting about this study is these are clinical trials. Um, and we still got it wrong with uh, very detailed staging. Uh, anyone who's enrolled in clinical trials knows how, uh, how detailed that methodology is, which begs the question, uh, how much, quote, worse could this be out in the community uh, where, where you don't have the uh, detailed staging uh, uh, requirements that you do for entrance into a clinical trial? This is uh, this is fascinating uh, because I, I mean coming coming from uh, coming from all of us in in the uh, in the for for treatment of our patients, where we're, what we're seeing here is in in Neil study is that there's actually a significant uh, difference between the clinical staging versus the pathological staging, and that translates to an inappropriate treatment options for our patients. Um, I, I find that uh, astonishing. But uh, but Neil, why don't you tell us? Uh, Tell us a little bit more in detail about what you found. 
Yeah, so um, thank you, Gerald, for uh, very kind words. And and as you've already said, almost half of the patients at the pathological stage disagreed with the the clinical stage. And when we break that down, the the major misclassification happens uh, in the nodal staging. Um, So I think one of the really critical findings, uh, to my mind, is when we just look at clinical stage one disease. So currently... Uh, our treatment options are obviously surgery, but also there are um, other options such as uh, stereotactic radiotherapy or even uh, percutaneous ablative techniques. So uh, where, uh, in fact, where we, if we were to try SABRE or those ablative techniques, we wouldn't have pathological staging. But if we look just at that clinical stage one group, we find that about 10% in this study of patients actually had pathological stage 3A or higher. So I think that's a really important group of patients because in those patients, just treating the stage one cancer would have a, uh, essentially be a futile treatment if we were to miss metastatic disease uh, uh, in their mediastinum. The, the other, I think, really important clinical finding from the paper is that about almost 20% of patients who were clinically staged as N0 turned out to have uh, nodal disease, either N1 or N2 or N3 nodal disease. And again, uh, as Gerard has pointed out with our current treatment algorithms, that essentially implies that in, in up to 20% of patients, we are often getting uh, potentially our, our, our treatment options wrong uh, in, in our clinics. So, Neil, so I, um, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Neil, I just want to go back and comment on the uh, idea of what we do in clinical practice. I'm sure it's pretty similar on both sides of the pond. But, um, you know, for patients who are in inoperable stage one, we often refer to stereotactic uh, body uh, radiotherapy or, or SABR. What what I uh, am so interested in, and I'd like to hear from you, is that, yes, you know, at our tumor board sometimes we go, okay, well, should we do an uh, endobronchial ultrasound to stage the mediastinum? And remember, these patients are often on oxygen and, um, and not the, not, you know, for, they're, they're not getting operated on for a reason, right? And so sometimes we do stage them with an, uh, staging EBUS and sometimes we don't. I think this paper really calls into question whether we shouldn't do that on everyone, um, you know, if, it's clini- if, if they're clinically stable enough to have a bronchoscopy. What would, you, would you agree with that? Would that be something I, that you I, think I agree with you, Gerard. And uh, as you say, it is a topic of debate in our uh, sort of tumor board meetings as well. I think uh, if the PET scan is negative and the tumor is really a T1A uh, tumor, then perhaps uh, and there are no enlarged lymph nodes uh, in the hilo or mediastinal uh, regions, and perhaps it can be avoided. Uh, uh, but I think invasive mediastinal staging, I think more often than not, I think is uh, is indicated in these uh, uh, in these patients prior to offering um, saber or uh, percutaneous ablation. Um, there, there is a, uh, in Europe there has been a clinical trial running uh, specifically addressing this. Uh, this question where um, patients have been randomized to um, either going ahead with the uh, uh, SABRE or percutaneous ablation versus having uh, invasive mediastinal staging with uh, EBUS and, and, and the US um, prior to uh, prior to SABRE. So, uh, and that should report, I believe, uh, uh, at the end of this year. 
really uh, really interesting uh, interesting um, uh, findings and 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 uh, can you uh, Neil uh, can you tell us a little about this uh, the the uh, the incorrect staging and how it affected uh, the treatment for these patients and then and which patient population actually did worse is it uh, is it uh, the understaged ones or the overstaged ones. Certainly in our paper, the, the major problem was understaging. And, and I think both, both understaging and overstaging will have profound effects on, uh, uh, on patient uh, options and patient choices. So I think uh, understaging, um, clearly we may miss mediastinal disease, and actually that means that we would not be having conversations with patients about options of chemoradiotherapy and subsequent immunotherapy, and maybe our focus would just be on surgery, when in fact uh, a discussion with the patient may should be focused around chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So I think that's the main issue, I suspect, with understaging. But then overstaging as well uh, worries me enormously. If, as in the example that Gerard uh, uh, brought up earlier, if, if we assume that there are nodal metastases and we think that there is uh, uh, disease in the mediastinal lymph node, that may inappropriately preclude a patient from being offered uh, potentially curative surgery. So I think both um, understaging and overstaging um, uh, are, are really important uh, 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 when, when we're coming to uh, offer treatment options to our patient. And, and as I say, it, it's almost the overstaging which was uh, slightly less frequent in, in, in this paper than the understaging, but it was the overstaging that worries me perhaps even more. There is an argument, uh, particularly on, on this side of the pond, perhaps more than in, than in the U.S. currently, that um, understaging may not be as much of an issue uh, uh, as we think, as long as surgery is included as part of the multimodality treatment. So that even if we were to miss uh, small volume metastases in the mediastinum, as long as surgery followed by adjuvant treatments is, uh, is offered, that may not necessarily affect patient outcomes. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, Neil. I, I would I would say, and you know, it's a question I had written down. I was going to ask you. I don't think either of us know the answer to this. But even with the best of staging, I I feel like, you know, what so what number could we get that's better than a fifty percent misclassification? You know, I think if we can get it down to less than ten percent, we we're never going to get to zero because what we are going to always find is you could do the best EVIS, you could do the best mediastinoscopy, but there could be micrometastasis disease, um, which should get resected at the time of surgery. And by the way, those patients have a better outcome post-adjuvant chemotherapy. So I, like, I don't want to be too hard on us. Um, I, I was wondering what you thought uh, in terms of uh, that, that 48% of cases misclassified. I mean, I don't know that either of us know the answer within that trial, but um, I would guess that some of that, there was no way anyone was going to get right. No, I, th I think that's fair. Um, in terms of, um, you know, trying to get that number down as low as possible, I think we should strive to, to, to get it down as low, purely because of the uh, putting the treatment options to the patient. Um, because if I, I don't think we should stop striving for the highest sensitivity that we can reach. Um, but I entirely agree it, that that figure uh, of sort of, understaging is never going to be uh, uh, 0%. We will always be limited by the 
by the sensitivities of um, the uh, the techniques that we use, and uh, uh, even in the very best hands, EBUS and uh, EBUS and the US combined are still not going to have a sensitivity of 100%, as you say. Um, there is um, a study that you may be familiar with called the SCORE study by um, uh, European colleagues, uh, Professor uh, Anima and, co and colleagues, that mm -hmm. uh, has specifically looked at um, very detailed, systematic, invasive staging of all lymph nodes within the mediastinum greater than 8 millimeters, regardless of uh, petavidity, uh, via routine um, uh, EBUS and, and, uh, and the US. And um, that, that study suggested that there was a 10% superior sensitivity of nodal detection by that systematic approach over approach simply by sampling the enlarged or avid uh, or FTG avid lymph nodes. So that potentially is an area, uh, I think, where we could strive to get that inaccuracy down even further if we were to adopt that uh, routinely. But I, but I do agree uh, that that's, that figure of inaccuracy is never going to be zero. Yeah, no, um, I would say, uh, 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 Neil, I, that I, while I agree with that and I've read that study, you know, I just want people to even stage the mediastinum at all. Let's start there, where you know folks aren't even doing invasive staging at all. Um, that would probably cut out, you know, 25 or 30 percent of the inaccuracy right there. And in fact, in the states, um, and uh, Peter Mazzone wrote about this a, a, a while back, where we we got together and we talked about what would be good, what we call in the United States, quality indicators. Just like, for example, the, do elderly patients in a primary care practice get the flu shot? Do patients after an MI get a beta blocker? Um, what would be a good quality indicator? And, and interestingly, one of the ones that percolated for, to the top almost immediately in lung cancer was uh, uh, accurate staging in the mediastinum. And so, uh, you know, I, I, d I definitely think, you know, sort of quality improvement endeavors could help us uh, to get that number down. And, and still, I don't think we'd get it down to zero. Um, and we could do better so, for sure. So, for, so for the listeners uh, and for myself to just kind of summarize um, what we uh, what we're discussing here. One is to uh, actually stage the mediastinum accurately uh, by having potential potentially quality measures uh, to uh, even with with a pet suppose a patient with pet positive mediastinum that patient should be staged and uh, and to get uh, actual tissue sample from the lymph nodes um, that's one quality measure and number two uh, even for patients with uh, a pet negative mediastinum um, is perhaps um, uh, the question that we're really trying to address is uh, those patients um, uh, should also uh, be uh, be staged um, uh, systematically uh, to farther reduce the uh, the chance of this uh, discrepancy um, uh, of incorrect staging or understaging or overstaging our patients uh, and therefore not getting them the right treatment they have is that is that correct would you would you guys uh, say that's uh, that's one of the goals uh, 
Absolutely, and in fact, in the 2013 uh, chest guidelines on staging, which I was uh, uh, the lead author for, that's exactly what we recommend. The only case we don't recommend that, I think Neil has already pointed out, so we recommend for central tumors, for tumors greater than three centimeters, uh, irrespective of the uh, irrespective of the uh, mediastinum, we want those patients staged with generally a needle technique first. Um, the one the one place where I think there's been controversy and we have low-level evidence is for a peripheral stage 1A tumor with a negative CT of the mediastinum and a negative uh, PET of the mediastinum. Those patients could go directly to surgery. The level of evidence was poor, um, but that was what the consensus from the guideline panel uh, recommended. So that'd be the only time we would say you don't uh, do invasive mediastinal staging prior to treatment. Is that how you what you follow in uh, in England, uh, Neil? Um, something very similar, but we have a more um, sort of inclusive role for PET, I think, where even in the stage one cases, uh, we would still uh, preoperatively offer a PET CT and then sample any FTG avid areas within the mediastinum or, or elsewhere prior to uh, prior to surgery. So I think the the difference there perhaps is just in the uh, very small uh, primary tumors. Uh, uh, you know, I still, st- still carry out a PET CT. Yeah, no, no, Neil. Maybe I, I, I mistook you mistook what I said, or I didn't say it uh, well, which is probably the the, the latter. Um, we do PET CT on those stage one A's, um, and then follow it up if any if any PET in the mediastinum is avid, um, and also for PET, the reason we do PET CT prior to surgery is that, you know there's that ten percent. Uh, uh, risk of finding undetected metastatic disease. So we do definitely do PET in those patients. Yeah, same, similar here. Um, so, so now I actually um, I found this portion of the uh, finding uh, in your study, Neil, very fascinating in the sense that this clinical study, uh, the clinical staging and the pathologic staging, um, the discrepancy was not associated with uh, age, gender, histology, or staging method or years of randomization with all, with all the RCTs that, uh, that you looked at. Um, can you can you disc- can you tell us a little bit more about um, uh, what what do you see as um, this this uh, discrepancy? Meaning, what what factors do you think is actually uh, affecting this? Besides uh, the fact that maybe we are not staging appropriately, um, we're not doing the appropriate staging in the beginning. Sure. So, I mean, we we looked at uh, several of these factors really to to try and identify whether. Uh, any of them would uh, predict inaccurate staging. Uh, and again, we're a little surprised to, to find that uh, particularly the year of randomization, uh, the staging methods that we used, and perhaps even the histology did not um, affect the accuracy of staging. There may, there may be some evidence to suggest, for example, that adenocarcinomas uh, more likely to, to miss mediastinal metastases than perhaps in those with squamous cell carcinomas, but that was not borne out. Uh, uh, in this data. And then similarly, uh, something that we did expect to see was that with more modern staging techniques, um, that the accuracy would improve. Now, I think it's a uh, limitation of our study that um, many of the patients uh, were recruited uh, uh, some time ago and these um, uh, and the staging algorithms uh, perhaps don't match uh, the quality of uh, staging algorithms that we have currently. 
But a lot of the patients in the trials actually had invasive mediastinal staging with mediastinoscopy, uh, whereas it's fair to say that many did not have uh, a PET scan. So despite uh, uh, adjusting for... Um, when we looked at particularly the association with the type of staging technique and uh, the year of the randomization that, that the patient was enrolled, there, there didn't seem to be a, um, uh, uh, any significant difference in the accuracy. And then perhaps even more interesting, if, if we look at some of the other uh, data that's around, not from randomized trials as we've done here, but from registry data uh, that uh, is held uh, in various countries, and um, the, the Dutch lung cancer uh, registry has published uh, not so long ago similar uh, data comparing the uh, clinical to pathological staging, and to our surprise found something very similar uh, in terms of uh, uh, the level of inaccuracy, and that's despite routine use of uh, PET-CT and, uh, uh, and modern uh, invasive techniques. You know, one thing that, that kind of jumped out at this uh, to me was um, uh, I, I was wondering when comparing the initial clinical staging to the actual uh, pathological staging, the time lapse between the two. Uh, was there any um, data that's available to assess? So, for instance, a patient coming with a PET-CT scan had um, uh, clinical staging uh, performed, and then, um, but unfortunately, was not able to schedule the surgery for until a month or two months later. Uh, would that, uh, how would that affect the pathological staging? Um, is there any data on that realm? Yeah, I think I think that's a really important point, actually. And I think, particularly in the UK, where suddenly woken up, I think, to the fact that uh, time does matter to, uh, uh, to, to patients undergoing uh, surgery. Um, unfortunately, with our study, we didn't have data on uh, the gap between the final clinical staging uh, and the time of surgery, so we're unable to answer that question. But um, I am aware of a study published very recently in CHESS that uh, uh, looks specifically at uh, time to um, surgery from, from diagnosis and showed a direct correlation between um, worse outcomes and longer time to surgery. So I think that's something that uh, um, uh, is also of, uh, of uh, real significance. So n not only does accurate staging matters, but perhaps and perhaps related speed as well of, uh, of getting, getting our patients through to treatment also matters. Uh, Gerald, can you comment about how, how we can um, sort of systematically approach this in a system-wide fashion, or how, how do you do it in, you, in your institution to, to ensure this, uh, um, this shorten the time frame between the clinical, uh, clinical staging and the pathological staging or to get to the treatment? Absolutely. Before I do that, I do want to go over one yeah, yeah. thing that we talked about in terms of the no difference uh, in random, uh, you know, date of the trials, no difference in gender, no difference in histology. The one that was really interesting to me, uh, Neil, was the no difference in age. Um, I feel like people get a bit lazier in terms of their staging as patients get older. They just don't want to put them through the testing. And so I, I would just alert our audience um, that, you know what, 
if we're going to do if we're going to put patients through major operation in their elderly years, we should do accurate staging. So what was kind of my heart was a little bit warmed by the fact that at least in this study, now these were uh, randomized trials, so uh, to get in the study they had to do certain things. But at least in this study, it didn't make a difference in terms of the accuracy of staging based upon age. So I, I just want to throw that in as one comment uh, regarding uh, your question about uh, what do we do here? What what do we hold as a standard? So I work in a multidisciplinary clinic. So every every Tuesday I have uh, two thoracic surgeons, two pulmonologists, two medical oncologists, and one radiotherapist in 20 rooms right around each other. Uh, we have a rule that we get any new patient referred in with a new lung mass uh, to our clinic in 10 working days, which is two weeks. Um, they generally come to the pulmonologist first for uh, diagnosis and staging. And uh, we try to, from the time we see them, which is in within that two-week time frame. If they're surgical candidates, we try to get them into the operating room uh, within two weeks of, uh, of, uh, of them hitting the door for us. And so I think part of this is the multidisciplinary approach uh, allows for a much decreased time frame uh, in terms of getting patients to the operating room. Uh, the second thing is, and, and this is such an interesting thing that um, we have looked at in terms of quality improvement in our clinic, which is what holds people up, generally what holds people up. And, and I know this is a problem in Europe, and, and uh, when I visited there a while back, Neil, it was a problem, particularly in the U.K., of getting people to PET scan, for example, or getting people... PFTs done or a blood gas done. And, and so what we've really tried to do is uh, break down those barriers in getting that extra testing done uh, prior to, uh, you know, prior to uh, getting them treated. So what we found out was, hey, you know what? The PET scanner was willing to open up slots um, in the evening hours for us, so at 10 o'clock at night. And patients are more than happy to come and get that PET scan at 10 o'clock at night if it means that they get their treatment started sooner. Um, I would say to the audience listening that, um, you know, they've looked at psychologic studies of cancer patients about what is the sort of most stressful time in the trajectory of cancer. You, you would think that that most stressful time would be right before the patient dies, but that's actually not true. Um, the most stressful time for a patient has been when they are being, being told they might have cancer and the first treatment. And so shortening that time not only helps get them the best care that they can get, it also really relieves a lot of stress on patients. And anybody who does mostly cancer for a living, like the three of us on this call, um, we understand that. And so I, I think trying to do some quality improvement measures in your own institution to take the barriers out, generally they're testing barriers um, uh, and uh, getting patients to, to, uh, to a multidisciplinary tumor board in a timely fashion. Those things can be overcome very quickly uh, if, if you have teamwork and a, and a reasonable hospital administration willing to listen. Uh, Neil, uh, any uh, um, any comments on uh, how your uh, institutions are uh, how your institution is uh, approaching uh, this uh, this matter of shortening the time between diagnosis and uh, and treatment? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to echo that everything that Gerald said. I think working together as a team is really important here. And I think it's not uh, not just the, the sort of the senior clinicians who are patient facing, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done by the administrative team, by the booking teams, and uh, it, as Gerard says, it's a very stressful time for patients, and quite and quite often we put them through a tremendous amount in often a very short period of time. So, uh, a PET scan, an EBUS, lung function. We want them to have a, a CPEX test. Uh, we may want them to have an MRI scan of their brain. These are a lot of uh, investigations to put through, put someone through at, at 
as we've said, an extremely uh, stressful time. So it does require uh, a multidisciplinary approach. Um, one thing that we, uh, I think, are pretty strong on in, in the UK is having uh, nurse navigators who uh, sort of meet the patient right at the beginning of their pathway and then help them through all of the investigations and right through to, uh, to uh, initial treatment and beyond. Um, and we really find that, that they are a really crucial part of the, uh, of the lung cancer team that can really help to improve the uh, patient experience and smooth their way through the pathway and, and sort of help, help that whole process through to the, uh, through to the first treatment. Neil, Neil can, I, can I ask a quick question of you? Um, so uh, just I'm familiar with uh, Lusarda and Mick Peake, who's a, a brilliant uh, epidemiologist and has worked around the country tying together your databases. Do you see big differences between, you know, you're at UCLH, it's a London-based hospital, a uh, lot of super subspecialists. Um, over the last 10 years or so, have we seen the wait times, for example, go down in surgery, the wait times from the time a chest X-ray is done or a CT's done to, to, uh, that shows a nodule or a mass to getting in the clinic and, and any differences between rural, urban, or underserved communities? Uh, yes, thanks, Gerald. So, so as you say, Professor Peake set up a long time ago a national lung cancer audit. Um, myself and two colleagues have, uh, have taken that on uh, in the last couple of years as well, and we've, we, we now collect data on a huge variety of uh, markers of lung cancer care, uh, including, as you say, um, uh, parts of uh, what we call the cancer waiting times. Um, now, the, uh, the times to, uh, to treatment have traditionally been in the UK uh, stuck at 62 days. So from time, what, what you just described earlier is time from an initial consultation uh, to, through, to, uh, through to surgery or whatever the first treatment may be. Um, the, uh, the mandated uh, maximum timescale there is 62 days. Just recently, um, in the last year or so, uh, the, we've mandated that to come down to about 49 days. And I have to say, the, um, what, what on the surface is you know, a relatively small reduction in uh, a patient pathway has proved quite challenging from a resource perspective uh, uh, in the UK. And as you say, it puts extra strain on PET scanner resources and, um, and, and obviously EBUS and lung function laboratories. So there is uh, a tremendous amount of work and a tremendous amount of willing from the lung cancer community to deliver this. I think one of the problems is we need to probably shout louder for resources and, and really... Um, of make sure that our, parent, our, our patients are not being uh, shortchanged and really try and get them through their lung cancer pathway as uh, quickly and as smoothly as possible. Yeah, I think uh, I think that that's uh, um, getting the patient uh, through the pathway can even translate to uh, survival benefits, uh, as your study have shown in this case or suggest uh, in this case. Um, it seems like this is this is the first time, for the first time, that your study have demonstrated the impact in accuracy, uh, clinical staging, on um, patient survival outcomes. 
Um, so, so this is uh, this is really an um, really important uh, um, kind of beaconing uh, light for us to actually follow because this is this is really bring everything to the forefront of consideration. How do we formulate a systematic approach to not only for staging but to for uh, but to uh, optimize patient management and care uh, going forward. Um, so, you know, now there's a, a few in the field of bronchoscopy. Uh, recently, there's been a, a, an effort to provide uh, both the staging and potential treatment options. Um, uh, that ranges from um, staging and then resection of a peripheral nodule uh, in the same setting, or uh, staging and potentially even ablation of the same nodule of the uh, pulmonary nodule in the same setting, potentially uh, for that are diagnostic for malignancy. Um, I, I wonder what what does that has uh, what what the implications uh, for these type of uh, approaches are. Uh, Gerald Renell, uh, why do you uh, uh, kind of take this up? Neil, you want to go first? I have. Uh, uh, yeah, I have sure. I mean, I think this is a, another really exciting area. Um, with bronchoscopy, we would have the potential to provide uh, detailed uh, staging information. Uh, as you say, provide uh, nodal staging information and then using peripheral bronchoscopy techniques such as um, navigational bronchoscopy, radial e-bus, uh, and so on, we will be able to sample the primary lesion so we get a full uh, picture of the intrathoracic uh, disease. And then depending on what we find, um, in an isolated uh, primary lesion, we may, as you say, uh, be able to offer bronchoscopic guided ablation. Um, I personally have not done a bronchoscopic ablation yet. I don't know whether you have, Gerard, but one of my colleagues in London uh, has, has done a few now, and uh, it certainly seems to be a very exciting, uh, exciting area. Um. So let me let me take a little bit of an alternative approach here, um, and I'm, I'm I'm writing about this, and I'm gonna I think um, I think it might challenge the pulmonary community in ways they haven't felt challenged before. I think we've oversold the, a couple things. One is I think we've oversold the diagnostic yield of bronchoscopy, particularly in the in the periphery. And and by the way, that's I was going to mention that about this study, Neil, which is. Um, you know, p people were doing mediastinoscopies in the study and EBIS and other things, and they were just missing it, right? And so, um, in our staging guideline, EBUS had a had a, a sensitivity of 89%. Um, uh, so, why is the only if if we have good people doing EBIS, why is the you know why is the inaccuracy at 50%? And it may be a lot of things, but one of the things is maybe the technology is not as good as we think it is, or so I've come down to sort of three things, technique, technology, or patient selection. And so when it comes to technique, you know, it's one thing to have the, the greatest bronchoscopists in the world, the Neil Navani's, the Felix Hertz, um, Kazu Yasufuku, um, doing these types of procedures. And then when they publish, they publish 100 cases. Um, their yield is very high on the diagnostic side. Those 100 cases and that are sometimes retrospective, single-site, high-volume centers with incredible support systems, they get 
collected together and put into what we call meta-analysis. And I'm as guilty because we publish the meta-analysis on peripheral bronchoscopy. And so what you end up doing is putting these things together in, uh, in, in a fashion, and then people start to believe that. Um, what we've seen recently, though, is that the diagnostic yield, particularly of uh, peripheral bronchoscopy, may be just better than 50%. And so I would urge us to to really be, uh, I don't think you're being dishonest, Neil, but the, the pulmonary community in general has to be a bit more honest about um, about its uh, diagnostic yields. And then that leads me to the therapeutics. While it's absolutely exciting and we're doing uh, things with robotic bronchoscopy, uh, we're doing things with, uh, you know, electromagnetic navigation, and then we get out there. Um, let's remember when we get out there, the reason to do a diagnostic and treatment setting would be, first of all, in patients who couldn't be resected surgically because those patients deserve to have uh, curative intent. So let's, let's now move on to the patients who are non-surgical candidates and say, okay, well, what about a one-stop shop where we would do a diagnostic and in the lab uh, have uh, on-site cytopathology and now we're going to do a therapeutic? Well, that therapeutic better be as good or better than, or at least as good as, um, stereotactic uh, body radiotherapy because that's an incredibly safe procedure, two to three treatments, three to four treatments depending on where you are, um, as an outpatient, incredibly well tolerated with a 90-plus percent local control rate at three years. So while I am excited about the technology, uh, while I um, believe that there is someday could be a place for that, uh, right now, man, I I think think, uh, just getting overly excited about it is problematic because we still have a ways to go, even on the diagnostic side, to get this right. So I I know that rains a little bit on the interventional pulmonary uh, parade, but but I just think we need to be a bit more uh, tough on our own technology. We have very few randomized trials. Um, You know, we just published a trial in in chest where we did regular transbronchial with fluoroscopy in one to five centimeter lesions versus peripheral ebus, and the, the yield was something like 47% with peripheral ebus and 37%. And this was four centers uh, in the United States, Hopkins, WashU, us, uh, University of Florida. Um, so good centers, and we still weren't uh, as diagno- had a diagnostic yield that I think uh, is reasonable. So I-, I would say that uh, I'm a bit more skeptical. I'll leave it at that. Joe, I entirely take your point. It's very well taken. The uh, I think... Patient selection, I think, here is absolutely crucial. And I think those patients who are operable, you're absolutely right, they should have surgery. Those patients who are suitable for SABRE should absolutely uh, have SABRE, in my view. I think there is still, and there are other patients who would benefit from this, uh, from a bronchoscopic approach. So in particular, those that... um, are in what we term as the no-fly zone for, for Sabre, so within two right. centimetres of a main bronchus. And actually, as it happens, that's perhaps quite a convenient area for us to approach uh, bronchoscopically right. as well, as it's a little bit more proximal. So, so that's a group of patients that I think um, for whom treatment options previously have been a little bit more tricky. The, the second group uh, are those that have um, very poor lung function and those that have um, pulmonary fibrosis. So there's strong data to suggest that Sabre should not perhaps be used routinely in people with uh, evidence of significant pulmonary fibrosis mm-hmm. on their CT scan. And clearly they're a group that are at higher risk of lung cancer. So in those, I, I, I entirely take your point about the, 
you know, I think there's work to be done with the technology. Um, but I think there are, there is still uh, patient selection is important here, and I still think that there is a group of people who, um, who uh, in, in just a primary lung cancer in those particular scenarios would benefit from a uh, from a bronchoscopic approach. I completely agree. I'll add another. And need to do better. Yeah, I'll add another group to your group, which is people who have been previously irradiated that you can't. You know, yeah, go back and radiate yeah. local recurrence. So I, I don't disagree with that. I think it's exciting, and I want us to do. It. I just want to force our field to do better studies, to do what I refer to as technology assessment in a sound way, um, before the technology rolls out um, and people start using it without without having uh, data to support it. Totally agree. Yeah, and agreed. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, uh, uh, Neil and Gerald, uh, again, this is truly a fantastic conversation and really fascinating on, in terms of uh, going from diagnosis uh, to streamlining management uh, to what the future potentially holds for the entire field. Um, uh, but unfortunately, we're uh, close to uh, out of time. Uh, so let's wrap up. Neil, uh, what do you want our listeners uh, to take away from uh, your study? Uh, well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to uh, to be on this podcast. Um, what I want people to take away, uh, think very carefully about the clinical staging. Follow your guidelines absolutely uh, as closely as possible and uh, really think about invasive mediastinal staging if that nodal status affects the treatment, uh, treatment for our patients. Uh, Gerald, final comments? I would agree to everything Neil said. Um, I would add one other thing, which is we should not care which technology we use to make um, the stage most accurate. So, for example, if you don't have great uh, EBUS support or if you feel uncomfortable that this wouldn't be the easiest EBUS, please go ahead and use mediastinoscopy or a VATS approach uh, to a left-sided uh, AP window lymph node where EBUS is not going to get it. I, I, don't, I don't think we need to concern ourselves with which technology we use. Just get the uh, invasive staging done in the mediastinum, which is really the critical part of staging for uh, uh, lung cancer. Um, the metastatic disease will take care of itself, but um, uh, I think the mediastinum is an area we could do a lot better. And it doesn't matter which technology you use, just use the one that has most uh, chance to get a diagnosis. Fantastic. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Navani and uh, Dr. Severstri, for your uh, time and the exciting discussion. Uh, and for our listeners, you will find this article and more in the Trias Journal. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and uh, we look forward to be with you here next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.